from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 2nd. Today, diverging decisions at the Supreme Court, how Amazon's arrival in Virginia may threaten a neighborhood, and an immigration workaround for foreign-born workers. Murphy versus Collier was the case of a murderer who had converted to Buddhism. Bob Barnes has been following this death penalty case as it's made its way to the Supreme Court. My name is Robert Barnes, and I cover the Supreme Court for The Washington Post. In this case, Patrick Murphy had been sentenced to death in Texas, and Murphy wanted his Buddhist spiritual advisor to come into the execution chamber with him. But Texas only allowed either a Christian or a Muslim spiritual advisor in the death chamber, and so it turned down his request. He went to the Supreme Court, and last week the Supreme Court put that execution on hold. It told Texas, either you keep all spiritual advisors out of the death chamber, or you have to make accommodations for prisoners who are not either Christian or Muslim. The stay on that execution was decided by a bench that had some relatively new justices. Brett Kavanaugh, the newest justice on the Supreme Court, was the deciding vote in that 5-4 case and the only one to write an opinion. He said that they couldn't discriminate against religious leaders in the death chamber, that that violated the Constitution. Now, you can sort of draw the implication that certainly at least the liberal members of the court agreed with Kavanaugh on that because it takes five of the nine to stay in execution. When you saw this decision come out, did it surprise you? Well, it was a surprise because of the case that had come before it, and that was a case from Alabama in which a Muslim prisoner had made the same request, that his imam be allowed into the execution chamber. Alabama said no, that only prison officials were allowed in there, and the prison happened to employ a Christian chaplain who could be with him, but otherwise no. He appealed to the lower appeals court, the 11th Circuit. That court put it on hold, said that they thought that he raised some very interesting questions about religious discrimination. The Alabama took the case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, there we do know the vote, five to four, allowed that execution to take place. The inmate in that case was executed. And he was executed. And so, in you know, what, what it seems we have here is a case in which a Muslim prisoner made a request. It was turned down. His execution went forward. A Buddhist prisoner made a request. It was turned down, but the Supreme Court stopped the execution. So it seems like very different outcomes. Now, the factor in this that I think that Justice Kavanaugh certainly would argue is that he thought that the request in the Alabama case came too late, that it was a last-minute appeal just to try to stop the execution. He thought that the timing in the Texas case was okay. So in his argument— 
the differences between the two cases were more because of technicalities in terms of when their cases were filed and how they appealed. As far as we know, yes. He didn't write anything separately in the Alabama case. He did write separately in the Texas case. But he got rid of the timing thing just in one sentence in a footnote saying he was satisfied that the Texas case had been filed in time, even though the appeals court in that case had said no. So it's a complicated issue, and it does certainly on the surface seem contradictory. So do we have a sense of what the differences in timing were in these two cases? Well, these things are very fact-specific because in some cases the state laws are different and, you know, there is disputes about when the prisoners actually got notice that what they wanted to happen wasn't going to happen. So Justice Kagan, for instance, in the Alabama case, she held that it was a timely filing, that they did it within days of finding out that the imam would not be allowed in the chamber. In the Texas case, the lower court said, no, he knew for a month that he wasn't going to have his spiritual advisor with him. He filed it too late. The court accepted one explanation. They didn't accept the other explanation. You mentioned that one of the things that people have been noticing about the difference between these two cases is that the one in which the execution was stayed, the inmate was Buddhist. And then the one in which the man was ultimately executed, he was Muslim. But also the guy in that most recent case was a white Buddhist, whereas Mm -hmm. the person who was executed was a black Muslim. Mm -hmm. Are people reading something into that? I think people are reading something into it. It's hard to know if that really factored into the court's decision. You can certainly find plenty of cases recently in which this court, including the conservatives on it, have stood up for Muslim plaintiffs. There was a case a couple of years ago in which a prison in Arkansas, prison officials wouldn't allow a Muslim inmate to grow a short beard because The prison had a policy against all facial hair. That went to the Supreme Court, and I believe it was a unanimous decision that said, no, you have to accommodate his religious practice. There's no real good reason for the prison to deny him that. And so, you know, you can point to lots of cases on either side. But I think certainly it was something that people asked about and wondered if there was a difference. So after that first case, the one involving the Muslim inmate who was ultimately executed, there was a lot of blowback to that decision, right? There was. It was very interesting, too, because it came from both the right and the left. The left uh, that you would think is especially concerned about uh, the death penalty and the finality of it, but also religious rights. And from the conservative right, also very concerned about religious rights. There was a lot of criticism of the court from folks who usually like what the conservatives are doing. And I think it's like impossible to look at these questions without factoring that in. The decision on the Muslim prisoner, I think, was clearly one of the most controversial and divisive of the term on the court. And so... I think it had a lot to do with it. Is there some speculation that Supreme Court justices would have looked at that and been like, if everybody agrees that this was a bad decision, then maybe we need to rethink how we approach this next time we see it? Well, that doesn't always work with the Supreme Court. Sometimes it causes them to hunker down and say, no, that they were right all along. 
But, you know, I think that what it does is it causes some of them, Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, to want to explain his position more. And I think that you can sort of understand what he did in the Buddhist case and his fuller explanation, perhaps by the idea that they didn't sort of get out their whole point of view that first time. And what's even more interesting about these two cases is that they were actually discussed again on Monday in another Supreme Court decision. Yes. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 178151, Bucklew versus Presight. And this was a case about a man in Missouri who committed a terrible murder 22 years ago. Missouri intends to carry out Mr. Bucklew's lethal injection execution. He now has a rare medical condition that he says that death by lethal injection could cause these tumors in his neck to rupture. That will very likely cause his execution to involve severe harm and suffering from the time they begin to get... And as the dissenters today put it, uh, would mean that he, he could literally choke on his own blood and that that violates the Constitution's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. It's a particular person that says, I have a highly unusual condition that will make the execution highly unusual, that will have me suffer highly unusual pain. But the court, on a five to four vote, again, with the conservatives and the majority, said that that execution could go ahead, that he had not proved that this would actually happen. He had not come up with an alternative means of execution that would be less painful or would put him at less risk. And it really showed, once again, the divisions on the Supreme Court over this question. And one interesting thing about this, this man in Missouri, Russell Bucklew, had gotten a stay from the Supreme Court last year. They put his execution on hold in order to have a briefing and oral argument. Justice Anthony Kennedy was in the five that granted that. Then, of course, he retired. He was replaced by Kavanaugh. And now there are five votes against Bucklew. The fact that we saw this flip between the outcomes of the two cases, do you think that says anything about the state of the court right now? Well, I think it does say that, you know, you would have to have a very good reason in order to get the court to agree to one of these last-minute stays now. Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion, said that these last-minute stays should be, you know, outliers. They should be for the most extraordinary cases, not for run-of-the-mill cases, and he would say certainly not for cases that have already been to this court several times, as the Bucklew case had been. And so I think what we saw is a real solidified conservative majority that's going to be much less open to these appeals. You know, one of the things that's a little uh, frustrating about the Supreme Court is one doesn't always spell out in detail its reasons for doing things, especially on these stay applications. And the other is that it takes a long time for it to work out. These folks have life uh, tenure. They don't need to decide everything right now. And so, especially with someone new like Kavanaugh, I think with someone like Gorsuch, who hasn't been there terribly long, it's going to take a while for us to see, you know, exactly what their positions are 
going to be on these questions. And so we are seeing the very beginning of these two justices and where they're going to come down on these questions. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. Just outside Washington, D.C., is a neighborhood on the border of Arlington and Alexandria, Virginia. It's called Arlandria. It's a little triangle-shaped neighborhood right on the border of Arlington and Alexandria that has been mostly Salvadoran for years and years. It's a poor area compared to the rest of the community and, and the whole you know, DMV, but it's a place that has a real sense of community for those who live there. There's uh, Hispanic groceries and restaurants and uh, barbershops and places to get long-distance calling cards. You know, people feel a real sense of community there. Patricia Sullivan is a local reporter for The Post. She's been following concerns surrounding Amazon's arrival in Virginia. And full disclosure, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos also owns The Washington Post. The fear is that Amazon's high-income workers would displace locals who've lived here a long time. That's happened in Seattle, where Amazon's original headquarters are. And concerns over that happening in New York led Amazon to cancel its plans to move to Queens. And now some residents and activists are afraid that that kind of displacement could come to Arlandria, which so far has mostly avoided the forces of gentrification. Part of the reason is that this is a very much a rental community. There are big apartment buildings. It's not as easy for a single homeowner to flip, sell out, you know, for a, a good price point to investors. It's also because there's a sense that if you need inexpensive housing, this is a place to go. Except that that could be about to change, right? It could be. And that's one thing that everyone is who lives there is worried about and people who are looking for investment are excited about. For the people who live in Arlandria, are they excited about some of these opportunities in terms of new jobs in the area and new opportunities to do business, or are they worried? Well, there's a mixed reaction. You know, some of the young people are excited because they think, wow, you know, I'm going to college. I'm, you know, this is going to present, you know, more opportunities for me. People who are older and settled say, "Uh uh-uh. I'm going to lose my home. And even more than losing my home, I'm going to lose my community. This one lady said to me, who's been there since 85, she said, I can walk down the street and I don't have a, there's no strangers. Everyone speaks my language. Everyone understands me. And she said, where else can I get this? And that's a good question. Where else in this area can she, can she have that kind of community? What has Amazon said so far about how they're going to interact with Arlandria and with communities around Crystal City? Yeah. Amazon has pretty much been focused on their business. Now, when I asked them specifically about this area and similar areas, you know, around their their new campus, they said one of the reasons they chose Arlington and Crystal City is because they trust that the local governments and the state government will take care of the problem. Now, the plans that local governments have had in place, I can tell you, having covered this area now for about six or seven years, 
are good plans, but far less than what the area needs. You know, there's no way that local governments can keep up with the demand for affordable housing. What, what is their plan? Their plan is to give grants to nonprofit organizations which build affordable housing. They hope to build between 1,000 and 2,000 units of housing that is affordable for people who make less than 60% of the median income. So that means a family of four who makes less than $60,000 a year. Alexandria and Arlington's plans are to help nonprofit builders build affordable housing, but 1,000 or 2,000 units of affordable housing will not meet the demand that's out there and it's growing every day. For people who are concerned about getting pushed out of the neighborhood now that Amazon is getting there, how do they feel about what has been promised so far, which sounds like it's not that much? Some people, as they say, are excited because they think, oh, more economic opportunity for me, but all this change might cause them to get an apartment elsewhere, maybe Prince William County, maybe Prince George's County, and that separates them from people they've known their whole lives. Have you already started to see that in terms of people getting offers to sell their house or to sell their businesses? Or We haven't seen it across the board yet. There's one fellow who owns Tiger Market, which is sort of a combination grocery store, deli, and general store in Arlandria. He said he was offered millions of dollars more than he owes on the property. Millions of dollars. Yes. But he doesn't want to sell because he likes, you know, he's middle-aged and he likes the community and he wants to continue his business. He's not going to sell it for millions of dollars? (laughs) He's not. That's what he said. Is there research about what the potential effects could be on this community once Amazon moves in? That research is just starting to be done. A researcher at George Mason University says people are panicking for no reason, that the impact of Amazon is going to be long-term and gradual. And that may be true throughout the region. People who live in the immediate proximity say it's not going to be long-term and gradual for us as soon as those first 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 workers arrive, they're going to need housing just like that. There's a conflict there. And we've heard so much about how the city of Seattle has changed because of Amazon and because of its huge footprint there. Is there a worry that these communities surrounding Crystal City, that they could be the next Seattle? Some people worry about that. You have to keep in mind, Seattle is very different from the greater Washington area. We're much bigger We have more choices of where people want to live. Amazon has clearly said in meetings with local officials and meetings with nonprofit agencies that they don't want to repeat the mistakes that they made in Seattle. They want their employees to be able to volunteer and help out in the community, and they want to sponsor a few things. But they seem very wary of putting money into an affordable housing project or a transportation project or anything that traditionally government takes care of. What are activists trying to do to make sure that this neighborhood isn't totally consumed by Amazon and that the people living there are pushed out? Well, the activists are saying that they want guarantees from the local government that there's money for people who are displaced. They also want to preserve certain buildings. For example, there's a co-op that in one of the past, you know, attempts at, at gentrification, the the residents banded together and built a, a small co-op. And they're saying, you know, it would help if we had access to, to long-term, low-cost loans. It's still to be seen whether or not the local government can or will do that. Patricia Sullivan is a local reporter for The Post. 
now, one more thing. This time last year, President Trump signed the Buy American, Hire American executive order. He wanted to change how the U.S. gives out skilled worker visas. Right now, H-1B visas are awarded in a totally random lottery. And that's wrong. Instead, they should be given to the most skilled and highest paid applicants. And they should never, ever be used to replace Americans. 85,000 of these visas are up for grabs each year. And Trump's executive action has caused a lot of uncertainty and fear, especially in Silicon Valley. You know, always with a question of, is it going to be renewed on time? Akshaya Morali works for a tech company based in Silicon Valley. You also have to get it stamped again. That means you'll have to exit the country, go through the visa appointment process, and then get back again. So it's pretty stressful, and we just wanted out of it, actually. Akshaya is from India, and she's been in the U.S. for more than a decade, living visa to visa. But a few years ago, she got tired of it. Especially with our son now in our family, we couldn't look ahead five years and decide where we wanted to buy a home or where we wanted to put some roots down to get him into school. And that really just felt unnerving, and it was not something that we wanted to continue doing. Enter Canada. Canada popped up and we were like, that seems like an interesting opportunity for us because they were really promoting their skilled worker program. It was kind of refreshing to see a different immigration system in general. So we were like, we're just going to go through the process. So they did. And it took eight months. Not eight months just to get a visa. Eight months to get permanent residence. So Akshaya and her family decided to go ahead and move. She approached her company, and it turned out that they were already using a third party that helps companies move their workers to Canada. I mean, I was in complete peace of mind because they managed payroll for me. They figured out benefits. They offered to help with everything related to settling down, which was phenomenal. This is happening more and more. Companies and their foreign-born employees are getting around the H-1B system by basically bailing and moving to Canada. And that has sparked a cottage industry of companies that expedite the process of relocating workers to Canada. The company that Akshaya's employer used, they advertise that they can get people Canadian work permits in less than four weeks. As for Akshaya, she says that becoming a permanent resident in Canada has been a huge relief. Except for one thing. So the winter was harsh and we had to get used to it. But otherwise, being in Toronto has been an absolute joy. I have to tell you, like, super proud to call this our home now. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.